Hello, my friends. Welcome. This is the Joe Martino Show. Today, we're going to do part two of our addiction to anger is killing us. Today, we're going to focus on six things that we can do that I believe if we practice these regularly, we can help. they can help us release our anger, feel the anger, experience it, and then move on in a healthier way to bring positive change to the world. Let's kick it off. This is The Joe Martino Show. You're listening to The Joe Martino Show, a podcast dealing with all things emotional, relational, and human nature. Joe is a licensed counselor in the state of Michigan, specializing in relationship therapy. He is also the author of the book, The Emotionally Secure Couple. All advice offered in this episode is offered for entertainment and educational purposes only. Enjoy the show. All right, so let's kind of just kick this off. Last week, I talked about an article that I read where, you know, the premise of the article was that we are addicted to anger and it's killing us. It's not actually helping us, but the problem is we think it's helping us and anger has been weaponized. The anger that we are utilizing has actually been weaponized to get us to do things or, or, you know, to encourage us to do things and... I agree with the article. I think that we as a society are addicted to outrage. We are addicted to anger. We feel smarter when we're angry. We feel like we're more righteous. We feel like we are more on the path of what's right and what's not when we are angry. And I don't actually agree that we are any of those things, but we feel that we are those things. And it's actually working against us. And so I ended last week with I don't know of any time that prolonged outrage, prolonged anger has actually done anything for the good. And just today I saw a evidence of this. I was in a conversation literally just about an hour before this recording with someone. We were talking about some political leaders and I asked a question that I actually felt felt was pretty innocuous, pretty pretty innocuous. The the person I was talking to, we agreed on the data that we were talking about. What we didn't agree on was what uh, the leader of our state was going to do. And, and so I asked a question and the response was, yeah, I probably shouldn't talk to you with uh, kind of a nervous laugh. And so I asked, I was like, well, why? I don't understand. What do you think I'm saying by what I'm saying? And well, I shouldn't talk to you. Okay, well, then I'll tell you what I think I'm saying. And you can tell me if that's what you thought. And what I think is this and... What she said was, that wasn't what I thought you were saying, and I've never thought about that before. Oh, so if we had ended the conversation where the warning lights went off that, hey, maybe we're not going to agree, we actually, you and I, could have missed out on a good conversation where you were able to be invited to think about something that you wouldn't have thought of before. I didn't actually say all that to her. I was just like, yep, that's what I meant. I understand it's a hot button topic, but wasn't where I was trying to go. And, and, you know, this was helped. It was in person. Uh, I did it today. I didn't, I didn't, I can't say I didn't mean to because I did it. I got involved in a conversation on Facebook and a person just keeps, you know, repeating a mantra and I keep asking for links or sources and I'm not getting it. And, and so that one's a little bit different. I kind of stop. Uh, but, but in person, I'll, I'll push it a little bit further and be like, well, hey, let me just ask you what you think I was saying. And, and I think, you know, the next logical question would be, well, why did you want to stop talking? I don't know what she would have said, but I do read body language for a living. She was afraid she was going to get angry or she already was a little angry because she thought I was dissing the governor. If you heard that pop, that was my knuckle. I just cracked my knuckle without thinking about it. And and so 
that response, right? Okay, so I would agree with her. Hey, look, I'm having this anger and, and this is a meeting not about this. So let's just back away from it. That's how we've gotten where we're at, I think. It, it's We don't have hard conversations and, so we're going to take two truths here. We don't have hard conversations and we have uh, embraced the anger as a righteous cause. It's, it's now a moral virtue to be afraid and be angry. If you're not afraid something's wrong with you, you don't care if grandma dies or you don't care if the Constitution's shredded. If you're not angry, you just don't care enough, which is hogwash, absolute hogwash. So today's topic is what do we do about it? Okay, so maybe you don't agree with me. Maybe you do. Maybe you're just listening because you got to commute and your normal podcast isn't available. What do we do about it? That's what I want to spend today talking about. And I think the first thing we do is we have to set a clear list of boundaries on what's acceptable behavior and what isn't when we're discussing hard topics. In other words, what are the behaviors that you'll allow and what won't you allow? What are the, and I'm talking about yourself here. If we, if we took as much time to hold ourselves to a standard as we want to hold other people to, I think the world would improve. So we're going to start with this. And certainly once you deal with your own boundaries for the standard that you're going to hold yourself to when it comes to how you interact with someone, when you feel anger, when you uh, feel distress, what do you want your response to be? Now, I believe that the initial burst of emotions, especially the strong emotions, ones like anger and those, it's very difficult to stop that. It's very difficult to stop anger from blooming inside you, if you'll, if you'll allow me that metaphor. It's very difficult to, to not feel it. In fact, I would say it's almost impossible. But what you do next is what matters. And, and you have complete control over that. You can feel the strong emotion. And then what do you do next? That's the thing that I think you have to look at. Because you have complete control over that. And the paradox is the better you get at allowing that emotion to wash over you and, and responding in a way that you want to, the better it will be in your body's ability to not feel that anger over certain topics. In other words, over time, responding correctly actually slows down the blossoming of the anger inside of you. So we start with, we need really strong boundaries. I think number two is is we have to avoid dehumanizing those we disagree with. We have to avoid dehumanizing people that we think do bad things or people that we know who do bad things. And disagreement doesn't mean that they're doing bad things. So I want to start with the thing when we know they're doing bad things. So for instance, in my town, I live in a very small town. Recently, a man was arrested for just violence on children. And I'm actually sitting with people who have been, I just switched topics on you there for a second. On top of that, I sit regularly with victims who have been through terrible things. I myself have been through some of those assaults. And it is easy for me to look at those people and dehumanize them and to, to make them, they're monsters, they're not human, they're this, they're that, uh, they're, 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 they're whatever, right? If, if, if you support Trump, you're a white supremacist. If you support Biden, you're an anti-American. Uh, it, whatever it is, I'm not saying that those are true, I'm saying these are things that I hear said. We have to realize that there is a space between what people do and people disagreeing with us. And when we dehumanize them, it allows us a space to, to, to fool ourselves 
and to kid ourselves and to lie to ourselves that we it's okay that we hold anger and hatred in our heart. Even the people who are doing terrible things, I'm all for they need to be locked up, like the people who are hurting people, uh, the guy in our community who is assaulting children. He needs to be locked up, I would argue, for life. I know there are people that disagree with me on that. I think it's too long, but I think he should be locked up for life. And yet I, I have to find a way to not dehumanize him because it keeps my soul healthy. It, it, it's good hygiene for my soul, for my heart. And it's good hygiene for your soul and your heart to, to not allow ourselves to move him from something that is human, broken, yes, but still human, to something that's inhuman. And, and the problem is when we give ourselves the quarter to do it with something like that, like, okay, so he, he has done terrible things. I would not even argue he's a good human, but he is a human. I, I was reading a headline uh, this morning about someone who raped and killed someone in Florida, and and the boy's—he's not a boy; he's a man. The man's uh, aunt came, you know, was interviewed, and she said, "Well, he's not a monster. Uh, he, he's a good kid." Well, I would agree that he's not a monster because that's a dehumanizing statement. And yet, I understand people who would say it. So I'm a little bit iffy there, but he's not a good kid, ma'am. He—he's he, not. He did something awful and terrible, and he deserves to be in jail for the rest of his life for that. When you dehumanize people, you give yourself the pass to hang on to anger. And when we do it there, the problem is then it bleeds into other areas. So now, if I'm okay with that, I can then now dehumanize people who disagree with me politically. As I have one friend who I was talking to this about, oh my goodness, probably two years ago. And I said, you have to stop dehumanizing people that disagree with you. And his argument to me was, we are a two-party system and it's adversarial. And so, of course, I should look down on the people who disagree with me. And I'm like, that's a long life, dude. That is a long, hard life that I don't think you want. Because the people who disagree with you, many of them you agree with on a majority of things, or you both want the same thing. You just believe in a different way to get there. And so we have to, we have to start with this person that disagrees with me is a human Right, so even even the like actual white supremacist, a person who is who is racist, a person who is uh, arguing for things that I believe are immoral and wrong, they're still humans. They are humans that I believe are broken, but they're human. And invariably, when I have this conversation with people, and I say, you know, I think we need to stop dehumanizing people, like. It almost always ends up, I usually start a timer in my head, it almost always ends up with, well, what about this particular, you know, historical figure that is known for atrocities? Yep, they were human. They committed atrocities and, you know, they needed to be punished. Or if they're still alive committing those atrocities, they need to be punished. There is right and wrong. There is justice. I'm not against any of those things. But we have to separate out our anger from the justice, we have to separate out our anger uh, from the right and wrong because sometimes there are things we get angry at. In fact, in our society, I'd argue there's a lot of things we get angry at where we just disagree. We, we've stopped many, many, many years ago. We stopped having discussions about things we disagreed on. And because we stopped having those disagreements, because we could now have friends, air quotes, on Facebook, rather than having to see the friend next door and go chase them down and see it face to face, 
We stopped having the communication. And now it's not just somebody that I disagree with, a human. I can dehumanize the person because they're just an anonymous face on the other side of the keyboard. And I'm not anti-technology. Longtime listeners know that. But the problem with this, with this method is that it's, it's, it will always end up bleeding into your real life. How you treat people on Facebook will always end up bleeding into your real life. So if you dehumanize the people on Facebook that you disagree with or Twitter or Snapchat or whatever it is, eventually you'll dehumanize the humans that you actually see face-to-face and disagree with. And that's what we're seeing right now. People are dehumanizing people over political opinions, over political beliefs. And yes, as one of our former presidents you know, recently said, elections have consequences and political beliefs have consequences. But one of the things that I just don't understand is we've lost the way where people are allowed to grow and change. Whatever age you are today, did you, do you believe the same exact things you believed 10 years ago? Is there anything that you believed 10 years ago that you don't agree with today? Do you not want grace for that version of you 10 years ago? Because if it's true that you believe something different today that you didn't believe 10 years ago or something you believe 10 years ago that you don't believe today, isn't it also true that the beliefs you're holding today that you're willing to just attack people over, that you're willing to dehumanize people over, isn't it possible that in 10 years you won't hold that belief in the same way? You won't hang on to that belief in the same manner. Is that not possible? And if it is possible, do you really want to be doing things that are unkind uh, and mean to people over beliefs that you might not believe in 10 years or that you might hold differently in 10 years? And that comes brings us back to that first one, that strict boundaries. I think the the third step is, is we have to decide what are behaviors that are acceptable, period, and what are behaviors that are not acceptable, period. So one of my beliefs is it's never okay to hit my kids, ever. It's never okay. And then I make policy for my life out of that. It's never okay for me to hit my wife, ever. It doesn't matter. It's never okay for my wife to hit me, ever. And, and those ones I don't usually get pushback on. Is it okay to call names, ever? That's a serious question. And here's why I ask, because often when I see people who are holding on to their rage, th- that's what it's about. It's okay to call names because I'm angry. It's okay. In fact, I actually heard somebody calling names one time and I asked them a question. I'm like, is it ever okay to call names? And they were like, well, I'm really angry because of this wrong thing that that other person did. So you better expletive believe that it's okay. Okay. So what you're saying is, is you get to be a person that is less than the best version of yourself because you're angry. That doesn't make sense to me. That does not, that does not track. That doesn't seem to follow what I understand about human nature. It doesn't work. It doesn't bring lasting, helpful change. So now we've got those three things in place. And I kind of look at those as like defining from what not to do. So how do we build these things, right? So what are the strict boundaries that we'll live by? What are the, what are, what are the ways that we will engage in difficult conversations? What are the ways that we will allow ourselves to not engage in difficult conversations? What are the ways that we will allow ourselves to, ourselves to not engage uh, in, in these things where we feel anger? And then we need to stop dehumanizing people who do things that we don't agree with and the people that, we do, that do things that we would universally agree are, are wrong and bad and should not be done. And then we need to set 
what are the behaviors that we will engage in? What are the behaviors that we won't engage in? It's why is it ever okay to call names? Is it ever okay to assault someone? Uh, is it ever okay to to be mean to someone? We're gonna have to define that last one a little bit, but sure, you know, what are those questions? And then if we really want to start making lasting change, one of the things that I believe we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, if I wasn't angry, what would I do to fix this problem? I want to say that again. If I wasn't angry, what would I do to fix this problem? In other words, let's say that you feel angry over the homeless and and you're engaging in a lot of they and, and we labels. You know, like, well, they just want the homeless to be homeless because they're just interested and you fill in the blank. What would happen if you were to stop and to ask yourself, what does it what would I do to help the homeless? If I wasn't giving this energy to my anger, to talking about the people that I don't like and how they're handling the homeless issue, what would I do? And then what would it look like for you to go do that, to go embrace that activity? If I wasn't angry, what would I do? And sometimes there are things that we can't do to get out of the anger as far as there are things like, okay, uh, this, this guy that in my community, there's nothing I can do, you know, to go solve the problem that he created. Actually, that may not be true for me as a counselor. I can provide space for the victims, but like, I I can't stop it. In other words, unless I see it, you know, and I see the signs, but we're always going to be reactive to that. But how do we create a culture What's the real problem? How do we create a culture that cares more for people? How do we create a culture that, that, that looks for the vulnerable and tries to help them without utilizing anger as the motivator? The real question is, why do we think anger is the, motivation, the motivator necessary for real change? I think because change is hard. So what would you do to change whatever it is you're angry about? And yeah, sometimes this anger that we feel, the, the thing that we can do to make the situation better is we can stop the people who are hurting other people. I get that. But what would you do to change the situation if you could? What's a positive thing that you could do? Because one of the things that I I feel like we're, we're losing out on in our society is we're not, we're not asking ourselves, what are the positive things that we can do? I saw a great quote that said, stop calling out toxic people, call out toxic behaviors, and the, and the people take care of themselves. And then someone actually said, don't worry about toxic behaviors, just live with really good behaviors and the people with the toxic behaviors will take care of themselves, they'll leave you alone. And so one of the things, what happened, what would happen if we stopped shouting at each other and we tried to find understanding? So this is, this is kind of the, my transition to the next thing. Try to get to know the people you disagree with. Now I'm not talking about people that are hurting people. That guy in my community, nobody needs to spend time trying to get to know him. I'm, t- I'm talking more about the people we disagree with. If you're a Republican, get to know some Democrats. If you're a Democrat, get to know some Republicans. If you are pro-whatever, try to find talk to people who are anti-whatever and, and, and talk to them. Get to know them and understand their story. Now, I'm going to warn you, this is going to be really hard. And it's going to be hard because most people are afraid to have difficult conversations in part because of the things we've already talked about. We've dehumanized each other when we disagree. So when you disagree, try to get to know the other person. Try to understand them. Ask them questions that can broaden your horizons. Try 
to find a place where you can understand them. Now, look, you don't have to agree with them. That's one of the things that we've lost. We can disagree. I have good friends that I disagree with on things. I had a buddy one time tell me that he didn't believe that I should let my daughter date. And I was like, okay, well, why? Well, I don't believe in teenagers dating. To me, that's like saying I don't believe in gravity, so I'm going to go jump off the second-story roof because I'm not going to fall. I don't have to believe in it. They're going to do it. And, and we can have the conversation. We need to figure out how to have conversations without attacking each other. We can attack the ideas. In fact, we ought to develop a, a, an ability to engage ideas and attack the ideas, to test the ideas, to stretch them and push them and simultaneously call for change. But one of the things that we also ought to do is we ought to measure the effectiveness of what we're doing. We ought to realize that there are good people who will disagree with us. I know, look, I've never hidden the fact on this show that I'm anti-spanking. And there are people, good people, who disagree with me and they're pro-spanking. That's okay. If they want to have the discussion, I am happy to have the discussion with them on the ideas and why I think the ideas are flawed. Now, here's the, here's the two sides. This is we try to get to know them. One of the things that both parties have to do is they have to be able to, to separate their own identity from their ideas. Because one of the things that commonly happens is when we say this idea is not a good idea, people are saying, I feel attacked. I was just talking to somebody, man, I don't remember what book they were reading. And they're like, I feel attacked over <laughs> the stuff written in this book. I don't remember. It doesn't matter because that's a common refrain. I feel attacked because my ideas are bad. But the, but the problem is because we've allowed ourselves to dehumanize those we disagree with, we have allowed ourselves to attack them and not their ideas. We don't talk about their actions or their ideas. We talk about them. We call them names. We dehumanize them and we keep them spaced out away from us so that we don't have to know them and realize that there are people that in almost every metric available, almost every measurement available, they are exactly the same as us, but we disagree on this topic. And so one of the ways that we heal from being addicted to anger, one of the ways we wean ourselves off of it is we get to know the people engaged in ideology that we disagree with. And again, there are things that happen that we have to stop, but we've got to get away from anger being the primary motivator. And then, and, and this one here is, is probably the most important, we have to know our mission. What is it in your mission that you're doing? Is whatever the argument that you're about to engage in, is that in your mission? The person you're about to cut out of your life, are you going to lose out on, on, on having a resource for your mission because you're angry over the fact that they don't agree with you politically? Is, is the person that you're about to say, okay, I'm not talking to you anymore, is that a person that could actually help you achieve your mission? What is your mission? Why are you here on earth? What are you doing? And so there are times I, I, I see conversations, I hear conversations, I'm invited to conversations, and I ask myself, how much energy of my life should this get? Or I feel angry about certain things. I feel the anger. And I ask myself, is this anger pushing me towards my mission or is it pushing me away from my mission? Is it, is it pushing me towards what I'm here for or is it pushing me away what I'm here for? You see, when we start by asking ourselves, what is this doing? What am I feeling? Okay, I'm angry. Well, is this helping me move towards my mission or is it moving me away from my mission? We can pause and just let the anger flow through our system. And then we can decide, we can go back 
to number four and decide what can I do to help solve this problem. I, I was talking to a friend of mine and I told him one of the things that I appreciate about him is he's always excited when something good happens in my life. Uh, one of the realities of adult life and even child life, one of the realities of life is that people are not always excited for you when good things happen. They're jealous, they're, they're whatever, and he's always excited. And we, we didn't see, so we saw each other, we talked, we didn't see each other for two or three weeks or four weeks. And then we got back together and he's like, you know, that ran me down a rabbit hole of how often are people talking about what they're against versus what they're for. And he said, I don't have any scientific evidence to back this up, but I do think that there is a correlation between the people who are more talking about what they're against and their anger level. And this is not like a conservative liberal thing. I grew up in a very, very religiously conservative environment. And many of those people that I grew up with have gone, have gone to the, the other side of that coin. And now they're, they're tremendously liberal. And, and still many of them are religious, but they're tremendously liberal. But what they didn't get rid of was the anger, right? And so a lot of times what I hear from people, especially in my generation, that grew up in very conservative, religious, angry environments is they're like, well, I reject that conservative religious environment because it was angry. And I almost always, if I have the opportunity, I will almost always ask them, are you now just in a liberal religious angry environment? And some of my friends who are not religious are like, well, that's the problem. If you weren't religious, you wouldn't have the anger. And yet I know many non-religious people that are angry. I believe that we need to accept that anger is part of our humanity, but that it should not be something that moves us, that should not be something that motivates us over the long haul. We should seek to find change in our world through consistent doses of kind behavior, of good behavior, of behavior that invites people to be better. I think that's how we solve this. All right, uh, what about you? What are your thoughts? Feel free to email me, joe at joemartino.com. Please put podcast in the subject line. Would love to hear from you. You can also reach me on Twitter and all of those good places. Uh, do want to let you know that my Kindle, the Kindle version of my book now has study guide questions actually in the text. I'm a little confused yet on whether or not it will automatically update for you if you bought the Kindle version um, or if you'll need to get a second copy. And once I know that, we're gonna, there are some ways that we're going to try and work around some things. Uh, if you want the questions, they are on the EmotionallySecureCoupleBook.com, uh, which it says it on the back cover, which you obviously don't get in the Kindle, but it does say it in different places in the Kindle as well. Uh, I am working probably about a quarter of the way through, I think, my next book. I've been talking pretty openly about struggling with it, and I believe I have found a groove that is working, and we shall see. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please share with a friend. And hey, give us that rating in your podcast store. Until next time, change possible.